0: Guys, I'm going to bring it down here today. Let's keep this kind of just together family style, you know. And uh, I'm, I want to lead this off this morning by showing you the opening line of a crusty old ancient creed that most of you have probably never heard of. Here it is: opening line. It says this: Whoever desires to be saved must, above all, hold the Catholic faith. Whoever does not keep it whole and undefiled will without doubt perish eternally. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance. Now, what I just shared with you here today is the opening of something called the Athanasian Creed. Athanasius, you got to get that kind of on your lips. It's a multi-syllabic name that really hasn't translated. I, I have yet to meet someone who has named their son Athanasius, you know, in this day and age. But think about it. Think about it. Athanasius Creed. Um, ironically, though named after a person named Athanasius, the author of this creed is anonymous though it was probably written sometime in the middle of the 5th century. And it was, in fact, named after this person called Athanasius, who had been long dead by a century, if not more at this point, who was a a, a champion, one who argued vigorously and convincingly of the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, this creed is one of what are called the three ecumenical creeds. Two of them, I bet you've heard of. The Apostles' Creed, you've heard of it? The Nicene Creed, which came after it, you've heard it? Well, this is big number three, kind of like the Holy Spirit in the Trinity. He's the one that's often forgotten about and never talked about too much. But this is one of those three ecumenical creeds. And what that kind of big phrase means is nothing more than this. It is one of those three foundational statements of faith that all believers, no matter their stripe or variety, have built their faith on. The teachings of Jesus codified in the Bible and summarized by these three, what are called ecumenical or universal creeds, serve as a foundation of every single Christian tradition that exists today. You know, I don't care if you're Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Methodist, United Methodist, Free Methodist, this Methodist, that Methodist, Assembly of God, Baptist, and all of its hundred varieties or arrays, Orthodox, Eastern Rite Catholic, Willow Creek, Chapel, this non-denominational church, that non-denominational church, all of them base their faith on these three creeds. I don't care if growing up your church said these creeds as part of Sunday worship or not. All of them Use these three summary statements of the teachings of the Bible. These three summary statements of the teachings of Jesus as a way to help clarify and understand the, the, the essentials, the essence, the, 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 the foundational teachings of the faith. And today what we're going to do is we're going to walk you through this Creed. Many of you, we suspect, for the first time, because at some basic level, it is such a powerful statement of who God is and who Jesus is and what God's up to in this world. But before we go there, I want to clarify a couple of potential pitfalls or misconceptions that you might fall into. Have you noticed already, like in four sentences? How much it attaches the concept of salvation to the teachings that are going to be unfolded. If you want to be saved, you got to hold to this, what it calls, Catholic faith. We'll get there. Whoever does not keep it, whole, undefiled, will without doubt perish eternally. So the stakes are kind of high. Would you agree? That, that what it's going to unfold, they view as being of dire importance. The second is this, the Catholic faith. This gives Protestants such a hard time. When you see the Catholic faith, and and this is going to pop up again and again through this creed, just like these salvation statements will, it is not referring to the Roman Catholic tradition as it's known today. Catholic is a Greek word. Probably didn't know that, but it's a Greek word, catholikane. You can hear it. And all it means is... Universal. So it's the idea that this is the statement of faith, the teaching, the summary, the beliefs that are held by Christians everywhere. That this is the universal faith. And what you're going to see as it unfolds is that it is all about the Trinity. That the people or person who penned this held the concept of the Trinity to be so important, so foundational that one couldn't even be saved without a right understanding of it, which freaks me out entirely. Because do you ever have that moment going, what do you do with this Trinity thing? Right? I've seen this from so many people. Christians who know that the Trinity is is important because they've been told it's important, but they go kind of like, you know, inside in places you don't talk about. Why? And then someone who maybe isn't a Christian asks for a little explanation. It's like, I don't get it. This doesn't make sense. What, What is this weird teaching of the Trinity? And you're just kind of left like deer in the headlights without anything to say. You've been there? You know what I'm talking about? maybe even in the discussions in your own mind. What makes it even harder is that if you open a concordance and try to find the word Trinity, you will not find it anywhere in the Bible. And yet, these early believers and every stripe of Christianity since has held it to be of such dire importance that to lose it would be the akin of losing salvation Itself. Now, today is a very little-known holiday called Trinity Sunday. I bet most of you have never even heard of the day. You are not going to find a Hallmark card or see a barbecue surrounding that, right? Right? See, these early believers believed that this concept of the Trinity was so important that they decided to intentionally mark a day. It's kind of their way of saying, let's make sure we don't forget about this thing. It's Memorial Day weekend, right? I I think it catches some of us by surprise, but the reason behind Memorial Day is not to give us a day off work and have an excuse for a barbecue. It's a way of saying intentionally, let's not forget what those who have given their lives for for our country have done. Trinity Sunday kind of does the same. Let's not forget. And so they marked it with a day. And so what I hope to do for you today is take you through this creed, but more importantly, take you through this concept of the Trinity, where it came from, and why it's so important. And what I want to do is take you on a bit of a historical unfolding or historical journey. And I am going to introduce you to three people today that I hope will help you see just exactly what's going on. Here's the first. It's a man named Arius. He was a priest in the city of Alexandria in Egypt. Lived around the year 300 AD. And Arius was trying to figure out how does Jesus relate to God? Like, how does that work? And as he would read the pages of the Bible, he would come across this phrase in the New Testament again and again. Things that the writers called Jesus ways that, that Jesus even arguably referred to himself on occasion. This phrase, son of God. Here's how his logic worked. Who hears a dad? Now, I'm not going to call you out. You can, you can raise on this, all right? Who hears a dad? Okay, now dads. That would assume you have a son or a daughter, correct? One of the two? All right. That is, in essence, what makes you a dad. It's great. We got someone back here just like wondering, well, I don't know. <laughs> it is what makes you a dad. Now, now, follow-up question, dads. Did you exist before your son or daughter? Well, yeah. Right? You brought them into being. And so Arius said, so must it be with God. The logic kind of went like this. I mean, you know, Jesus. I mean, Jesus is way up there. I mean, we're, we're not knocking Jesus. I mean, he is something special, at least in some way. You, we could even argue that he is somehow and in some way divine. But for Arius, it kind of came to this. The Father is like, really God? God? Where Jesus is sort of God. Because it's the Father who was there from eternity. But Jesus, if he's a son, must have been created by the Father and therefore is not eternal like his dad. Are you with me? And the early Christians saw this. They heard this and like, you know, this kind of makes sense but they wrestled with it and they were like you, you know Aries, i mean we we kind of get where you're coming from but but the problem here is it just doesn't seem to do justice to all the data i mean for example i think of first uh, not first john but i think of the gospel writer john in his first chapter who says this and now He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word here is referring to Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God. And Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, Jesus, all things were made. Without him, Jesus, nothing was made that has been made. In him, Jesus is life, and that life is the light of men. You get this idea from these these opening chapters of John that he's trying to make this case that, no, I mean, you can call Jesus son of God, but He was there all along. He was there from the beginning. See, what these early Christians were wrestling with is the idea that if you make Jesus somehow a created being, you are making him somehow less than God because God is eternal. And therefore, Jesus must be eternal. To be God. And so, out of this debate, out of which birthed the Nicene Creed, began the seedbeds of this concept we call the Trinity. And the first hill to die and the first anchor that they really posted was this that no, no, Jesus is God. Jesus is fully God. Let me introduce you to person number two. Here's Nestorius. Nestorius was a player in his day. He was not just a bishop, he was an archbishop. Archbishop of Constantinople, Istanbul, right? Istanbul was Constantinople, Archbishop of Constantinople, right around 400, maybe a little later, even 431 AD. Now, what Nestorius was doing was trying to figure out how is it that Jesus can be fully God, but also be a human being as well? Like, how does that actually work? And his logic kind of went like this. He would turn through the pages of the New Testament, and he would see again and again that Jesus would be described in the most human of ways, that Jesus seemed to exhibit human characteristics and qualities, that at times, Jesus just seems so stinking human. I mean, think about it. He gets hungry, he eats, he cries. He gets tired. He gets weak. He experiences emotion. He's filled with joy at times, but sorrow at times. He gets frustrated. He gets angry. He can be wounded. He can suffer. He can be tempted. He can die. It sounds pretty human, doesn't it? And then you start adding the layers. He was born. He had to have his diapers changed. He cried. He experienced puberty. He experienced a crush. He experienced heartbreak. As Luke will put it, he grew in wisdom and strength. And stature. At times, whoa, Jesus seems so stinking human. But he would page through these writings of the New Testament and see that at other times, Jesus just seemed so stinking divine. He was powerful. And I don't mean like strongest man competition. I mean, I'm talking like, you know, he's powerful in supernatural ways, powerful in ways that people just aren't. I mean, he even raises dead people, that he has authority. And not authority that's given to him by the powers of this earth, but authority that seems to transcend or come from outside this earth, over everything of this earth, authority over people. Authority over religion, authority over, over customs, authority over nature, authority over disease, authority over death, authority over the demons. There's something that hums about him of supernatural presence, uncorrupted by human nature, above the frailties and moral culpabilities of the human weakness. And Nestorius saw these, these sets of data, this paradox between this, this utterly human Jesus and this utterly divine Jesus, and he wrestled with how does that actually work together. And a solution came something like this, that Jesus is like two personas In one body. Like two different people in one body. There's a divine side and a human side that are somehow and in some way soldered or fused together in this one figure that you see. And so that when Jesus would suffer, that was his human side. When Jesus got hungry, that was his human side. When Jesus died, that was his human side The divine left over here. And the early church wrestled with this. They looked at it. And it's in the stories. I mean, it kind of makes sense. We get what you're coming from. But it feels like you're turning Jesus into a Jekyll and Hyde. You know, you guys have seen Split, right? No, apparently you haven't. Two-Face from Batman? Batman? All right, I'm batting over for 2. Just rent some movies this weekend. Um, Jekyll and Hyde? All right, we can stick with Jekyll and Hyde. All right, we at least got 15% buy-in there. All right, fantastic. That, like, you know, it just... This side turns on, this side turns off, and they're like, it just doesn't seem to do justice to the data. That somehow Jesus is just human. Sometimes Jesus is just divine. That he turns one side on, one side off, as though it's multiple persons or personalities in one figure before us. They said it seems to be denigrating something. It seems to be denigrating that when Jesus is doing these incredibly divine things, that he's not also fully human. It seems to be denigrating that when Jesus is doing these utterly human things, that it's also not the presence of the divine. Worse than that, it seems to indicate that when Jesus died for you, it was only as a human, but not divine. It seems to cheapen the lengths to which God has gone to save you. It seems to sift the divinity out of the crucifixion so that a God no longer died for you. And for those early Christians, that not only seemed... that not only seemed insulting to the sacrifice the God they worshiped had made, it seemed to jeopardize the very essence of salvation itself, that the divine in all his power sacrificed himself for you, affecting a salvation for all people. And so what it led, these early believers to do is work through the seed beds of the Trinity even more. That Jesus is not only God, but insisting that God is one. That Jesus is not some separate God, separated from God, apart from God, differentiated from God in some kind of way so that it was only the man, Jesus, who died for you. No, God is one. And so when we look on that cross, it is more, far more than just a human who died for you. Are you with me? Which leads to person number three. His name is Eutyches, and he hated Nestorius. See, Eutyches was an elder at Constantinople. He wasn't a big dog. He was a middle dog. I don't know if he had an ego trip. I don't know if he was looking for his star to rise. I don't know what the psychology of what was going on in his mind happened to be. But he attacked Nestorius like nothing else. He saw his pastor, who so influenced him, kind of going down this path, and he grabbed his moment to take him down. Because, see, like his pastor, this Eutyches was wrestling with the exact same issue. How is it that Jesus can be both human and divine? But he took it to a different extreme. For Eutyches, it kind of worked like this. Jesus is human. Jesus is divine. Human plus divine equals some new kind of thing. Unlike Nestorius, who tried to keep the human and the divine so separate, Eutychius took the human and the divine and so enmeshed them that they almost became one and the same. In fact, they did become one and the same. With each almost being unidentifiable. It kind of works like this. Think of an ocean. And let that ocean represent God. Now, how big is a human in relation to the ocean of God A bucket? A gallon? A drop? A speck of mist? How much bigger really is God than each of us is human? Now imagine that drop of humanity being put into the ocean. You could argue that the drop is in fact still there. But for all intents and purposes, doesn't it kind of make it unidentifiable, immaterial, insignificant? Worse than that, the way that Eutyches approached this, it seemed to make a new hybrid. That human plus divine makes some kind of new hybrid, some kind of amalgam that really is no longer fully human or fully divine anymore. And the early Christians, they wrestled with this. They saw this and they said, Eutyches, I mean, we kind of see where you're coming from. I mean, you're a total jerk, but we kind of get it. But it doesn't seem to fit all the data. Jesus doesn't seem like he's part human, half human, any more than it seems like he's part divine, half divine. We have got to maintain the idea that he is fully both, however those pieces might fit. We've got to maintain that when Jesus suffered like one of us, he really suffered like one of us. We've got to maintain that when Jesus lived in our skin, it wasn't just kind of like putting on a costume. He really became what we are inside our skin. That when Jesus died for us, it was fully as a human, not a partial human, not a hybrid human, not a halfway human, not a subhuman. Truly dying for the penalty that humans like you and me have earned. And so what this led these early believers to do is work in the seedbed further to come up with what for them became the third anchor point, that third foundational truth That not only is Jesus God, not only is God one, but Jesus is not the Father. He is fully human and distinct as well. Now, I want you to look at this list today. Just look at this list and soak it in. These three truths that you see up there. Jesus is God. God is one. Jesus is not the Father. Read the New Testament. Read the Old Testament. Sift through the data. You are going to find pictures, illustrations, teachings, point of evidence. You are going to find it everywhere. The pages of this book drip with these three truths about God, despite the fact that the word Trinity appears nowhere. The word is nothing more than an invention that's been meant to capturize, to summarize, to encapsulate what these three pervasive and permeating truths are about. And it is because of these three ideas that the understanding of God that Christians hold today came into existence. Second, think about what I've shared with you today. It would seem at one point, it's really a description of understanding God, right? That the Trinity is about understanding who is God. But if you look a little bit more closely, I think you'll see something else instead. It isn't really so much about who God is as about who Jesus is. Did you see that going through every step of the way? Paul will write this. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That you never see God more clearly than when you see Jesus. That you can never understand God more fully than when you understand Jesus. And so understanding who Jesus is becomes the key to understanding god that no matter how much time you can spend meditating in contemplating in seeking to read and wrestle and discuss and understand the nature of god no matter how many prophetic oracles you've been given, no matter how strong the inward senses might be, no matter how much your observations show who God is and what he's like and what he's up to by just soaking in life and the world and yourself, none of it comes close to revealing who God is than by looking at Jesus the Christ and for these early believers this is precisely why the trinity was so important because to understand that is to know who jesus is get jesus wrong and you miss it all how did peter say it to those early early people in jerusalem There is no other name under heaven by which people can be saved. How did Jesus say it himself? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Miss Jesus. Miss God. Get Jesus wrong. Get God wrong. And worse, misunderstand what he's up to in this world misunderstand the very salvation operation he's offering you. No, for these early believers the Trinity was something so much more than a mere academic exercise. For them it was linked inextricably to salvation itself. And so What we're going to do for the back half of our service today is take you through the Athanasian Creed. No one ever says it because, quite honestly, it's boring and long. But see, here's what it is. It was meant to be that final word, to once and for all clarify all the ways we confuse the nature of what God is doing and is up to in the world. You see, the band's getting restless. They're already heading up because they can't wait to just bring it here. And here's the reason why. The reason no one says the Athanasian Creed today is because they say it wrong. So many times, we do it here at church. We put a prayer on a screen, we put a creed on a screen, and we just say it, right? Maybe either thinking, A, that it's magic words, that by saying it, something will happen, or B, that it's some kind of academic exercise for ourselves. This is here to teach me and give me understanding. It does that, to be sure. But to relegate it to that is to miss its purpose. Because for those early Christians, creed, equaled worship. These statements of faith that Christian churches have based themselves on, they were always meant to be expressions of devotion, gratitude, love of God to say, we know who you showed yourself to be. We get it. And we submit ourselves to your name. We confess it. We profess it. We will even lay our lives down. For that name. So today, we're going to take you through that creed, but hopefully in a different sort of way. We're going to worship it here today. We're going to worship with these ancient words that so deeply and wonderfully express who God is, who Jesus is and what he did for you. So I want to invite you to rise. Take a moment. There we go. (laughs) Take a moment. Familiarize yourself with this first major section. I shared the intro with you already, but let the words soak in so that when we say them and pray them and worship with them today, it transcends words on a page. Are you ready? For the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Holy Spirit is another. But the Godhead of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is one, the glory equal, the majesty co eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Spirit uncreated, the Father infinite. The Son infinite, the Holy Spirit infinite, the Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet there are not three eternals, but one eternal. Just as there are not three uncreated or three infinites, but one uncreated and one infinite.